Hey, TTL listeners, we're going to jump into the show in just a minute. But first, we wanted to let you guys know about a very special podcast webinar that's happening tomorrow. That's right, tomorrow, Wednesday, February 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. The webinar is called Podcast Like a Pro, a crash course for marketers. And it's going to be hosted by our very own lead producer here at Wistia, Silent Adam. If you're a marketer or someone who's thinking about starting a podcast, or someone who wants to start a podcast for your business, but you don't know where to begin, Adam is going to talk you through just how to do that, how to plan, produce, promote a podcast for your brand. It's going to be great. Sign up for the webinar at wistia.com slash events and tune in tomorrow, February 17th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. Okay, let's get into the show with Jim McKelvey from Square. Is the guitar, does that qualify as a piece of furniture? The guitar is technically acting as a piece of furniture (laughs) right now, but it is is a musical device that I've had for some time. Okay. Um, So that's nice. Favorite favorite song to sing and play? Favorite song to sing. Um, (laughs) uh, Probably Blackbird by the Beatles, because I feel like it sounds hard, but it's not, actually. I was ready to make fun of you. I thought you were going to be like... Counting crows. Counting crows, bro. <laughs> that, that's more silent. Sub forty one. I just love the power chords. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Talking Too Loud with Chris Savage. I'm your host, Chris Savage. On today's episode, we have the co-founder of Square, Jim McKelvey, joining us to talk about his book and a lot of the theories he has around building companies and entrepreneurship. But first, I'm joined as always by Sylvie LeBeau. Sylvie, how are you? I'm good. Always a treat to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know why we both laughed. Why did we both it's real? It's always a treat. It's always Always a a treat. treat. Yes. So what what's got you talking too loud, Sylvie? What has got me talking too loud? Um okay, so I ordered a new desk. Wow. And it was incredibly heavy, and I managed to get it into my elevator. And then when I was coming out of my elevator, it was kind of wedged, like I was trying to get it off the elevator, you know, out of the elevator door into mm-hmm. the hallway. Okay. But I pushed it, and it promptly fell. And then I promptly fell, and I stubbed my toe on into, the desk into the yeah. elevator. I'm was there anyone else around? I'm not sure which. It's one of the two. Where is this either... desk from? What kind of desk are we talking about? Is this, oh, I'm, I'm gonna wait. Hold I on. Let me shame. guess. Let me guess. Let me guess. I have shame. Yeah. It's no. like a oh, mid-century modern-ish, like maybe <laughs> West Elmy desk. Is that right? West Elmy. I mean, you're giving me far too much credit there. It is. <laughs> Wayfair, the cheaper nice. version of West Elm. The cheaper but anyhow, non-brand West Elm, yes. I got this desk, stubbed my toe, injured myself a bit, still haven't even attempted to unbox it. It is just sitting in Wow, you've given up. Carpet. You should just sell it. Just get rid of it. You know, these. it's so hard to get home <laughs> furniture right now. Everything's delayed. Everything's Everything. so delayed. You could probably turn around, turn that, that stubbed toe into a profit if you wanted to. <laughs> You're such a businessman, always <laughs> thinking about the profit. Um, oh, I'm really God. thinking about who I can hire to assemble my now kryptonite. But uh, well, maybe we enough. can get Silent Adam to help. He's pretty close, isn't he? Yeah, Silent yeah. Adam, 
Come on by. Yeah, when you're helping to edit this episode, Adam, I want you to pay very close attention to this section. Pay close. And then go over and help Sylvie with her crappy desk. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's going to be crap. It might be. It's crap. No, it's probably going to be amazing once it's set up. It's obviously going to be great. It's okay. It's a crappy desk. We all know it. No, 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 no. But you, you have a new get up, set up, set up I have a new set up. Yes. My office has things in it. Speaking of furniture, I ordered stuff like three months ago. It all finally showed up. I never thought I'd be so excited about rugs. You know, the rugs, they tie the room together. Rugs. They, rugs. they dampen sound. Rugs. They're just amazing. It feels so cozy. Rugs. <laughs> um, yeah, we got rugs in this room and my kids' rooms. And it's just everything feels so much cozier. It's really This is it's a really plug, for rugs. L- plug for rugs. plug for rugs. Never thought I'd say this publicly. Plug for rug. Um, <laughs> yeah, no, excited about that. Actually, the other thing I'm really excited about is we've been watching this show with the kids called Bluey, and it's this Australian animated show. Every episode is like seven, eight minutes. And it is like the most adorable, funniest, cutest little thing I've ever seen. Is Bluey an animal? Bluey is a dog. Um, It's a family of dogs. And it is, I I think it's on Disney Plus. I think anyone who watches it will enjoy it. I think any age will enjoy it. And it's it's a, a wonderful show because it's, it's so shocking what they can pull off in like seven minutes. It was like a reminder to me of like an amazing story told with poignant and funny moments. It just brings great joy. I'm excited to check out Bluey Savage. We're going to get them on the show. But before we do that, we have another great guest today, Jim McKelvey. Jim Tell McKelvey. us about Jim. Yes. Yes. Jim is one of the co-founders of Square. He started it in 2009 with Jack Dorsey. Um, he's still on Square's board. He has a new company that's helping teach folks how to code. He's written a really great book called The Innovation Stack, um, which is about companies that dramatically expanded markets and you know end up solving like very hard problems that no one saw before. It's a really cool concept. Kind of a heady guy. He's a glass blower. Jim is a wild person. He's a, he's a fun person to talk to. I really really enjoyed the conversation we have with him. Let's go talk to Jim. <laughs> Let's talk to Jim. Jim, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you so much. This is going to be fun. Are you in St. Louis today? St. Louis, Missouri. Yep. Uh, in my office, believe it or not. Uh, wow. Look yeah. at you. In an office. That must be exciting. It's very quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and there's a lot of mail on the desk. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, I'm, I'm really excited that you're here. Um, very excited about your, I'm going to call it your new book. It came out at a tumultuous time. It's new to me. And excited to talk to you about, you know, what you've learned building Square, how you think about innovation, how you think about disruption. There's so many different interesting things in the book. And there's a lot of stuff that I felt like I heard in your story that I don't hear very often. And so just really excited to jump into this with you today. Yeah. And um, I apologize for writing a book. Um, I didn't want to. I fought it for years. And uh, I got a homework assignment from Herb Kelleher, who was one of my idols. And that's what you read. Uh, eight, eight, eight revisions later, that's what came out. <laughs> only eight. Only eight. It only took me eight complete rewrites to get something that I thought was good enough. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, so the book and it is about innovation stacks. And as you described in the book, it's a series of reactions to existential threats. Yes. 
Can you break down what this statement is and what is an innovation stack and how is it uniquely tied to survival? Yeah. So one of the things that I struggled with was the word innovation itself because it's so overused and it's just this thing that gets, you know, up smeared all over business presentations. <laughs> and um, I've always found doing something new to be extremely difficult. And I thought I was sort of... Um, dysfunctional because everyone else seemed to be embracing innovation. And I was like, oh God, that's like the last thing I want to do. <laughs> but it turns out that when I got deeper into it, I realized that the process of innovation, at least for the people who've been, you know, sort of super successful, looks different than this sort of dumbed down version that I was always fed. And so that's one of the reasons I wrote the book was that I felt like I wanted to know this. I felt, I wished I had a time machine and could like give this book to my 20 year old self because it contains a lot of the sort of brutal lessons that I had to learn the hard way. And um, I figured I'd pass on at least what some of the stuff that I've learned. Well, I think it's awesome that you have. And, and one of the things, you know, as I think about the term innovation stack and having read the book, recently and, and and not seeing that term before. Basically, let, let me see if I can describe it. You tell me if I've done a good job or not. Cool. Cut, this okay. to, cut this to shreds. <laughs> no, no, go. Ba basically, if you're trying to solve a problem that hasn't been solved before, there aren't obvious answers. Yeah. Um, you start, you, you go and you build a solution to something. And um, then often that solution, because it hasn't, there hasn't been an answer before, creates more problems. Yep. And no one's faced these problems before. And so then you try to create another solution to the problems that you created and you continue on your way until eventually you end up doing something so completely different than how people have um, attempted to solve the, a writ large problem before. Is that oh right? Oh my God, you actually read the book. <laughs> I did, yes. I read it. Oh my God, no, no, that was a great description. That was a great description. <laughs> the, the only thing I would do would, would be put a little more emphasis on a problem that hasn't been solved before because that's where... Uh, the paths diverge. So you come into so many problems in your life that are already solved. Like you can find the solution on YouTube or you can go get a degree or you can find some expert or, you know, like there's, there's almost, for most of the problems we have in our lives, there is a known solution or solutions. Find one of those, copy it, do what everybody else has already done. When you can't do that is when you have to begin innovation. And I say have to. Like, there is no other choice. If you want to solve a problem that hasn't been done before, I mean, duh, you have to do something new. So that's kind of a trite thought. But what is hopefully not trite is that that process is a god-awful mess. And the thing that comes out of it is this sort of beautiful thing called an innovation stack. But the process that creates the innovation stack is really brutal and messy and unpleasant. And it's not something that people sort of voluntarily sign up for. So what I did in the book was I looked at companies throughout history who have built these things and what the results were and what the commonalities were. And I saw this pattern and my jaw hit the ground. Like when I, when I finally saw the pattern, I was like, oh my God, because I had always felt so weird and alone and square. I mean, you know, I guess we're a hundred billion dollar company today. I mean, that's NBD. weird. I mean, that's yeah. weird. Like yeah. the, 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 there are other but, words for that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, but I mean, the, the, I felt so alone. But then I saw, wait a second, we're just like all these other companies that have become the biggest in the world in what they do. What's the thing that drives them? And that thing I called an innovation stack, because we just needed a word for it. 
But it's interesting because it is about finding those problems that haven't been solved before and being, I think, honest with yourself that they haven't been solved. Or if they have and you're playing within the same rule set, that you're going to end up in a similar place to everybody else, right? Isn't that like another big part of the idea? Yeah. And and, and I'm not trying to denigrate copying. I try to copy everything I can. I try to find somebody who solved the problem I'm looking at and, and do whatever he or she did. But occasionally I run into problems and I, you know, this is maybe once or twice a year or even less, I'll run into a significant problem that I cannot find anybody on the planet uh, has addressed properly. And then usually I I say, I'm not willing to do it. I mean, usually I look over that precipice and go, (laughs) not jumping again, right? But then occasionally I, I find myself drawn to some problem that I feel so compelled to do something about that it's worth taking the risk. And, and, and there are no guarantees if you're going to solve it. Like that's the other thing is that baked into almost everything that we're taught is that there should be this, this sort of shiny guarantee at the end that if you do these things, if you follow this checklist, if you, you know, buy my online course or whatever the hell they're trying to sell you, uh, that you're going to get the solution. And with an unsolved problem, there's no guarantee. So a lot of times uh, just doesn't work, but it's the only way we move forward. Yeah, I think about that a lot too, in terms of there's a lot of problems that I've seen over my career that seem like they have an obvious answer. People have done it before. And, you know, I was probably too reticent to copy at first, actually. We were almost extreme and like, oh, we're going to try to figure out everything ourselves. And then eventually I realized, wait, (laughs) I should be copying wherever I can and only try to spend the entrepreneurial energy on those things that don't have solutions yet. Yeah, you'll burn yourself out if you reinvent everything. But, you know, again, you want to feel like you're doing something uh, unique. You want to feel that you've got some individuality. That That's sort of baked into the way we're, we're taught we should behave. But if you're really doing that level of unique work, at least for me, I always feel very alone. I always feel very scared. I always feel like somebody is going to kill me at any moment. Uh, and so it's an unpleasant process and, and look, um, you know, so I guess the question you're sort of asking is like, who's the book for? Like who, who reads this thing? Yeah. And if you look at the dedication, I wrote it for a, with a specific person in mind. I mean, Herb Keller was a guy who, you know, basically gave me the homework assignment. Like he was like, how are you going to share this with the world? And I'll tell you that story in a minute. But the person I had in mind when I was writing it was somebody who I consider exceptionally gifted just super competent. Uh, she's got a master's degree from one of the best educational institutions in the world. And not, you know, some fluffy master's degree, like, like a real badass technical master's degree. Like, <laughs> and and she's, she's brilliant, uh, hardworking, caring, uh, just all these superlatives. And yet I've seen her time and again come up against a problem where she doesn't know the solution. And she stops and she says, well, I'm not qualified to solve this. And my, you know, 300-page answer to her is, okay, you might not be qualified, but let's look at that a little bit further. Maybe you can't be qualified to solve this. Like, maybe you would be the first person in human history to do this thing, in which case you are not qualified. The first person who does anything on this planet is not qualified to do it. I mean, we were sort of joking before the podcast started uh, because I'm wearing this headset that makes me look like a pilot, but I actually am a pilot, right? Um, (laughs) And and I I was joking about this, but like if you think about flying an airplane, today you'd be an idiot if you got in without being trained as a pilot. 
because you can get trained in their their urine tests and their FAA yeah. exams. You'd, like, be, a, yeah, you'd be a moron. You'd yeah, be a you'd, moron. You'd just yeah. be a total moron. But yeah. you can't fault the Wright brothers yeah. for not having their FAA medical. You know, you, you basically say, look, one person has to get in this thing that's never flown and see if it works. And that was, you know, the Wright brothers. And that's the nature of doing something truly new. You are unqualified. Yeah. It's funny because I have told a lot of people when we started Wistia that Brennan and I, my, my co-founder, that we were just so naive and we were so, so naive as to what we were doing. And that was like part of our advantage because we didn't know what we didn't know. We didn't know that it would be as hard as it would be, but that allowed us to like go down the path and try to, to solve problems that didn't have answers then. And now when I, when I look back and this, you talk about this in the book and you just said it there, but you know, our society is not, is not set up to, to create entrepreneurs, right? Like it's, no. it's as you, especially as your definition of like true entrepreneur going out there and solving a problem that's never solved before. It's, it's in fact, the opposite. Everything is like, learn the same stuff as everybody else, take the same tests as everyone else, have the same qualifications. And it's interesting because I think, I think about like, how can we encourage more true entrepreneurship? And I don't have a good answer except to try to, you know, show showcase examples of it. But even then it seems, everything seems obvious in hindsight. Like when I was reading your book, you have these pyramids and you could see like, all right, this is how the money was moving in credit cards and that there was a, a major problem. It seems obvious to go after it now. Yeah, but- <laughs> it always does. <laughs> yeah. That's the beautiful thing is that it seems obvious once it works to everybody else. And yet going through it, Jack and I made a bet when we started the company that we would either celebrate with hot dogs or champagne in a year, depending on our outcome, because we genuinely didn't know. You know, he was just coming off a lot of success at Twitter. I'd had a couple of successful companies. Like, and we looked at this and went, eh, you know, because yeah. that's the nature of building something new. And you asked a really good question there, which is, you know, how do we encourage more people to be true entrepreneurs? And, and I think one of the things we should do, and I don't think we're actually going to do this as a society, but like maybe a couple of, like maybe a secret sub-society, right? <laughs> so, so I'd like to have like a conspiracy of people who use the word entrepreneur in its ancient meaning, you know, uh, and the ancient meaning the secret meaning of the word entrepreneur is some crazy person who's doing something that's never worked in the past, that they're trying something that, that isn't going to likely succeed. And that was the original reason that we have the word. I mean, if you look at the word, it's a God awful word. It's impossible to spell. It's it's, it's, so annoying. You know, like reminds me of my failed French studies. Um, But the, (laughs) Like, why is that second R in there? Yeah, I, yeah, I can never, I've, I've typed that word probably 50,000 times, almost never successfully. Like spell check <laughs> just, just saves my bacon. But like, the reason we have that horrible word is because we needed it. You know, 150 years ago, Joseph Schumpeter, the, the economist, was trying to describe these people who were doing businesses, but they were so unlike the other businesses, which were sort of normal companies uh, that he needed a new word. So he created this word for it and it, it sort of survived in its useful state for, you know, 75 years. And then we started overusing it. And now entrepreneur just means business. Somebody who starts a business. If you're, you know, you start a coffee shop, you're an entrepreneur. You start an airline, you're an entrepreneur. Well, you know, like 
airlines have been started before. You know, coffee shops have been around for, you know, since we figured out how to get caffeine out of beans. So I think our secret society ought to have the word entrepreneur as one of its, uh, you know, sort of secret words. <laughs> but it's old, the old meaning, which means you're probably yeah. crazy and you're probably going to end up dead. But, eh, you know, give it a try. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, pivoting from that, I, I think one of the things you talked about a lot about in the book is the, having the perseverance and the audacity to be an entrepreneur. And as I was reading, I was thinking, and I've asked myself this question before, do you think people are actually like born with these inclinations? Like, do you think that people are just like born to be perseverant or do you think they develop over time? And then I think the other part of the question is, I love that you're talking about the fear. And actually that was another thing in the book that jumped out to me. It's like, well, I have no idea how any of this payment processing works. Like I have zero <laughs> clue. Yes. And, and it's, it's very refreshing to read that and then see where you are. And that's part of the secret to the success, I think. But how do you think these things fit together? Like, is this, is this something innate or can it be learned? It is born into you. If you're not born with it, give up now. No, that's a <laughs> load of crap. But you got to understand, that's the hero story, okay? The hero story is that there's certain among us, genetically gifted, who have the abilities that we don't have. And these people uh, are superheroes, and they can they can bend steel, and they can leap tall buildings, and you know. Um, but then there's you know, poor old Batman, who's basically just a regular guy with a bunch of toys who gets punched in the face more often than he should, um, you know. And he can be a superhero too. So my sort of message is that at least according to my research, and this is not the square story, but this is like me in a library for three years looking at the history of these companies and the people behind these companies. They're normal folks. They're plain old, bumbling, you know, nose-picking, awkward folks who just happened to be so far out of the mainstream that they were forced to invent something new. And that's really sort of empowering for the rest of us who, you know, get depressed, have motivation problems. You asked me about perseverance versus audacity. Um, Look, I don't think you're born to be an entrepreneur, but deep within us is, is this survival instinct, okay? We may not be perseverant. We may not be, you know, someone who can do something regularly every day, uh, but damn it, we're not going to die, okay? And what I noticed this pattern was that the people who had the audacity to do something that's never been done and really committed to that, or not necessarily committed to it, but were committed to that, i.e. passive, i.e. I study a lot of people who didn't have any choice. Like there are a lot of super successful entrepreneurs who were just really, really unlucky and, you know, stranded and alone, but they refused to die. And, and that I think is born into us. So yes, I guess if you're, if your disposition of an entrepreneur is somebody who doesn't give up and then you further say, and under certain circumstances, you put yourself in a situation where you or your company is going to perish. And if you're unwilling to accept that, then, oh yeah, you get motivation for miles. Like if you're going to kill me or anybody I love, like I will fight you forever. And so if it's a cause I believe in, I, I, I tend to get this well of energy. And I think most people do, and at least according to the people that I've studied who were whoppingly successful, um, 
that seems to be where a lot of that energy comes from. I mean, that's a pretty optimistic view, I think. And I agree with you. You know, I know a lot of founders who have had success. Based on what I know, if you were to look at a lot of these folks when they were in high school or college, like I, I don't think they would necessarily pick them to be the entrepreneurs that are you know as successful as they are today. Often to their own admission of like being really nerdy on the outside, quiet. You know, a lot of the like what we think of as entrepreneurs today is shifting, but not the like classically take command of an army leader, which is at least what I grew up thinking what an entrepreneur kind of maybe was or what a leader was. And it's interesting to think about getting yourself in a position to try to solve those problems and trying to solve the right hard problem and then allowing yourself to get through the process, which is horrible and painful and exciting and energizing. But it's like through this definition, that's how you would become an entrepreneur. Yes. And I believe there is some advantage in being somewhat of an outcast in early years, because by definition, you will be an outcast if you're an entrepreneur. If you are doing things that have never been done before, all the people who love you, not, not, not your enemies, like just the people who genuinely care about you will sit there and say, Chris, what the hell are you doing? Chris, like you could have, you could have made something of yourself. Like, Chris, you could have, like, you could have, like, and, and they'll paint for you the path that, that they believe is best because that's how they've completely conditioned themselves all their lives, especially the ones who've been successful. They're like, hey, you know, it's pretty comfortable right here in the middle of the herd. Why don't you come back, man? But if you've been an outcast a little bit, you at least have some familiarity with that feeling of everyone going, well, Chris is an idiot. Chris is just, just like, God, Jesus, he's doing it again. Oh my Lord. You know, just, just, like that's the feeling that, uh, that preserves you because it's, it's somewhat familiar. And, and I'm not, again, like I don't want people to go out and my, buy my book because they think there's some checklist in there that's going to make them some you know, magical pile of money or the next $100 billion company. I will show you how others have done it. Okay, I will show you a process, but there's no checklist in the book. Um, but what I want you to understand is that, you know, there are things in this process where I think we're losing really, really good, capable people for terrible reasons. Like if you and your co-founder uh, uh, gave up on your company because you felt like an outcast and you were so uncomfortable with that feeling, we'd lose. So we need more people to at least be ready for this shock. Pivoting to another kind of heady, heady thing here. Uh, well, first of all, I get to use the word pivot, so that's great. Let's <laughs> yes. talk about. Oh, let's, thank let's, you. Yeah, <laughs> let's talk about. Let's use synergy later. Yeah, uh, synergy is coming next. <laughs> I'm giving uh, you a synergy. You guys, my favorite words. <laughs> um, is disruption, and you talk in the book about how entrepreneurship is not as much as about disruption as people think it is. No. Um, because entrepreneurship, and remember, I'm using our secret society <laughs> definition of the word. Entrepreneurship is almost all net new. So if you build something that has never been built before and so sell it to people who've never had the thing you're selling before, who suffers? Your competitors? No, you don't have any competitors. You know, like, so, I mean, this was a thing that, that just fried my brains as I was wandering around Silicon Valley for years, you know, being called a disruptor. 
oh, you guys have such a disruptive company. And I was like, oh, thanks, man. You know, because it's sort of this, uh, this. It's a badge of honor. Yeah, it's an embrace in yeah. that ecosystem. But, you know, when I actually started to dissect the word, as I sometimes do, um, I, I was like, well, what did we disrupt? And so I started looking for the bodies. I was like, I will go stand on their graves and gloat. And, and no, there weren't any. Like even, even the company whose CEO took me out to dinner and called me an idiot for two hours as he sort of threw back martinis one after another. Like even this guy's, well, his, he, he got fired, but like his company's still around, <laughs> right? I see it every day. Like th- th- there, was, there was not this sort of, you know, like pile of bodies uh, after Square. So I started looking historically. And, um, you know, the greatest example I found was uh, Southwest Airlines. So Herb Kelleher was telling me that when Southwest would open up a new route and charge a quarter of the price of the existing carriers, those other carriers still increased their volume on that same route. Okay, so you hear you come in the super low price competitor and your volume increases? Like, where's the disruption here? So it turns out that entrepreneurship, if we use, you know, sort of that secret definition, is wildly positive and very undisruptive. Where you have disruption is is this zero-sum game of business where you and I are in the same business, which means that my gain is your loss. It's actually a really important difference, though, because a lot of what you are talking about is like, all right, let's find people who are underserved or let's find a market that we doesn't, what's the size of the market? I don't know. I can't tell you because there hasn't been a solution here before. That then later, people often still apply the, the word disruption to it. It's like, well, look, you have all these SMBs, so you must have disrupted the enterprise. Like, well, the reality is the whole pie got a lot bigger. But that, I think that's a hard thing for people to come to terms with or think about it using this definition of the secret society definition of entrepreneurship. It can set people on solving the wrong problem, I think. And it's just like, I'm going to make this cheaper and that's going to be how I win. It's like, no, that's usually not how you're going to win. Yeah. And look, zero sum is really baked into our brains. You know, I have to fight zero sum thinking all the time because I was raised, you know, in a fairly traditional world with traditional education. And to me, winning meant beating. Okay. It meant having somebody who lost and I participated in sports and activities where, you know, that was reinforced. And it's hard to think sometimes about these powers that are sort of generally positive for everyone. And again, you know, what you've got is this, you know, all your education, all your rearing, half your, you know, genetic disposition is, is to believe things that will stop you from doing entrepreneurial activities. And I just wanted to say, okay, look, there's another way. And here, look at, don't look at me, but look at all these wonderfully successful people throughout history who've had the same weird things happen to them. And look at how this pattern looks so different from what we've been taught and what we, what we believe without even questioning. You came up with the idea for Square because you lost out on selling some glass to someone. Yes. A glass that you had made. Because in addition to being an entrepreneur, you're a glass blower. I have many questions about this. <laughs> but my first question is, how did you get started in glass blowing? And my second question is, how do you think about balancing your artistic career with entrepreneurship? I got started because I needed money. I took a job straight out of school with a degree in computer engineering and a second degree in economics with a startup that was run by a crook. Um, I was I was naive. <laughs> 
Uh, I realized after like a month that he had screwed over all these people and that my number was coming up soon. And so I quit. And I didn't quit in any intelligent way where, you know, most people who quit, they, they, they line up the next gig. I was like, wow, I have to quit today. I've had this realization. I went and I quit. And I woke up the next morning. I was like, oh, man, I have no way to make money. <laughs> it was literally that next morning. I was like, what can I do for cash? And, um, you know, programming wasn't this hot thing that it is now. So I couldn't really just do that. Um, and so I knew how to blow glass because I'd taken some classes in college. And so I started uh, making and selling work, but not with this idea that I wanted to be an artist. It was the idea that I wanted to be fed. And so I got really good at glass blowing really fast because I had to. It was not some sort of passion project. It was this thing. I love doing it. Believe me, I love, love, love working with glass. But I needed money. And so I was completely mercenary in my approach to art. Your other question, which how do you balance that with entrepreneurs uh, or you know, my, my business activities and you know, all the other stuff that I do, um, I, I find it necessary. Look, I love the, the world of the studio. First of all, glass is a really difficult material to work with. I've been doing it 30 plus years and I still use most of my expletives in the glass studio. <laughs> you know, it's, it's this thing that has never really uh, succumbed to any of my efforts. I'm still struggling with it. But uh, love, love the material. Um, because glass, it's impossible to hide mistakes. It's clear. It shows any sign of stress. I can go into the studio in the morning and open up the annealer, and I can tell you how he's feeling that day, or I can actually look back in time. Like I can like go here on my shelf here. I can pull up a piece that I made this piece here thirty years yeah. ago. You're you're uh, up. You're hopping yeah. around. <laughs> well, yeah. Here's here's your podcast. Uh, this thing. <laughs> he's gone to the shelf. He's 1989. The shelf. Okay. I made this in 1989. This delicate, gorgeous piece of glass. I have been trying to replicate for thirty years. I was in such a good mood that day. I don't know what the hell happened. I can't get that back. <laughs> I was having such a great day. It's obvious to me some days when I'm in the studio that I need psychotherapy because I'll just come out and I'll, I'll unload my work and I'll be like, what the hell's wrong with me? Like, what, what is wrong with me? And the answer is not something in the studio. It's like, oh, oh, you know, I'm having a you know, like fight with my friend or this is stressing out or you know there's a subpoena you know or like that's like, there's some magical thing the other thing about the, the glass which is you know truly wonderful is i get to physically make stuff you know and and when i'm at the office like i can type all day and nothing ever changes in, in the physical world so i love it for a bunch of reasons uh, and still do it like i'm now like trying to make these oh very lovely like uh Ooh. like drinking glasses yeah they're because- like tumblers <laughs> They're tumblers, but they're chaos. They they're, are. They're, they... they're chaotic. And you can't drink out of these things casually. They really command your attention. <laughs> which <laughs> That like, looks so hard. Yeah. If you try to drink out of this thing without paying a little attention, you will pour the bourbon down your shirt. So it's like a sobriety test, too. It's, it's like, how do I have this under enough control? <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like, literally, that's, this is what I do in the studio. That's awesome. So, it's, it's interesting to hear you talk about bringing where you are like emotionally with you to the studio. Cause I feel like I, one of the things I've learned 
over the years of just having lots of people on a team and managing them is like so often the stress or confusion or whatever of somebody at work is actually driven by something at home. And it's just that simple question of like, how are you doing? What's going on? And they're like, well, actually, you know, whatever. My dog is sick and my, you know, this, I have a horrible roommate or whatever the thing is. Because it's cool to think about a place you can go to where there's like no need for that filter. But I'm always thinking to myself, like, how do you, how do you get the right balance at work as well, where people can bring themselves who they are and be honest about that. If you can tackle those issues, obviously you do better work. Like if you're going to do better glass blowing when you're in a positive emotional state, hard to be there these days. And that the same is true at work. Yeah. I mean, we're in a tough year, but uh, as long as you don't have to be politically correct and you're around people who you trust to not tweet it, Gallo's humor is pretty good. Well, look, speaking of tweeting, um, back in the day, you hired Jack Dorsey, who is also your co-founder at Square. He is the founder of Twitter, as you mentioned. Yep. He's had a busy uh, busy couple weeks here. <laughs> what What is your hot take on Twitter banning Trump? And do you think, you know, we're going to go back to the book again. Do you feel like this was done at the right when? Look, it's been coming for a while. It got to be a bright line with, with Trump and the, the teams at Twitter made those decisions. I, don't, I wasn't in any of those meetings. I don't know what it means to ban somebody. And, and I'm not equivocating here. Would have yeah. been my decision? Yes, I would have supported the same thing. But the other thing is, look, uh, I'm on the Federal Reserve. And I've been on the Federal Reserve from the Obama administration through the Trump administration, you know, now to the Biden administration. And if you are on the Federal Reserve, you take a vow of political neutrality. And that has been the most enlightening thing for me to force myself in all cases to say, wait a second, Jim, you're in the middle. <clears throat> you represent all sides. And as a director of the Fed, I must maintain that in all my actions. And, you know, I, look, I haven't got my own opinions, but it's forced me to really listen to a lot of the people who I would have normally just reflexively disagreed with. And it's the most wonderful gift. I mean, I love, I love working on the Fed, but probably the greatest thing about working on the Fed has been this discipline of me not just saying, oh, I disagree with you and here's why you're wrong. I sit there and I listen. So I'm not going to you know, opine on what, what Jack and the team did, but I will say this, like listening to the people who you most disagree with is a really good way to learn and grow and also to find out some tricks that you didn't know. And um, my God, we can learn a lot. We can learn probably most from the people I disagree with. So look, you you clearly <laughs> get excited and 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 are not afraid to share your feelings and and what gets you going. And like this this show is called Talking Too Loud because I ha- I cannot control the volume of my voice when I'm excited. It's a constant problem. It's heard throughout the neighborhood. It was I was that way when I was a child. Most of this episode, you've been very excited. <laughs> so this question almost seems silly to ask, but I guess my question is today, is there something that has you talking too loud or something that gets you like overly excited that you, that you want to share with the listeners? Well, there are a bunch of stuff. Um, I'm super excited right now about lo- what LaunchCode's doing. So LaunchCode's a nonprofit I started seven years ago that's training people for free to become programmers. 
Uh, we're scaling up. We're opening Philly. So if you're a business in Philly, you need a great programmers, call us at Launch Code. We will put somebody in front of you who might not look like your stereotypical programmer, but he or she will kick ass. And if you want to become a programmer, find one of the cities where there's Launch Code, and I'll give you a quick plug for that. I'm super excited about because it's working. I'm really excited about some of the stuff that Invisibly is doing. Invisibly is a company I started to, you know, give us control back over our eyeballs, how our attention is bought and sold because you're the product these days and people are starting to wake up to this fact. But for the last three years, we've been working on a way to let users, let, I say users, God, that's such a jerk move. People, <laughs> let people take control of their identities. And look, we don't know if it's going to work. And, and so, you know, talk about innovation stacks, like I've been busting my ass on this problem, it might not work. It doesn't work right now. Like I will tell you, go to invisibly.com, you will find like we only have one working product and it wasn't even the thing we were trying to build. We turned out to be deadly accurate in political surveys. Like we, we called the election, we called okay. the election within half a point. Wow. We called it almost perfectly. So we've got this, but we never tried to build that thing. Like it was this <laughs> side effect. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm, I'm super excited about that. Um, look, there's, there's a lot of really cool stuff that I get to work on now. I feel like the luckiest guy in the world. Well, look, that's a great way to end. Jim, thank you so much for the time. This is really fun. This is a true delight. And can't wait to see all of the, the stuff that you're doing. Um, and yeah, look forward to, uh, to a brighter future with more innovation stacks and more true entrepreneurs. Chris, thank you so much. It's been super fun. Jim is a whirlwind, isn't he? He's a whirlwind. How does he fly a plane? Such a whirlwind. Whirlwind. Did I say? He's such a whirlwind. He's, He's such a, a whirlwind. He's a whirlwind. World of, world of wind. How do I produce a podcast? Is actually the question. That no one know. knows. It just Nobody kind of. Knows. I don't. There's somehow things are recorded and things happen, and I'd see texts and things, and then there's a <laughs> podcast, <laughs> and it sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, no, it was, that was fun. It was, it was, he, I love how quickly he just like dives into other subjects and, and clearly has, he's removed his filter long ago. Yes. <laughs> his filter is gone and bless him for it. I, it was just delightful. It was interesting to hear about him being on the federal reserve. I was mm -hmm. like, Whoa, look at this guy. Look at this guy. Glass blower, glass blower, Mr. Federal, federal reserve. Founder of Square, no Killing big deal. It. So we love the interview with Jim, but what does everyone else think? Are we, are we getting feedback here? What's up? Yeah, um, listeners, please continue to rate and review us. But actually, Savage, we've, we've gotten a couple of emails. Ooh. We have a very delightful email from Eric in Massachusetts. He had some lovely things to say about talking too loud. Um, very nice. But also a couple of questions that he sent our way. Um, do you want to read a couple? I can, sure. I can try to shed some light. This is for you, Eric. This is for you. Um, let's see. First one here. I'm sure you don't completely wing the interview, but what does the prep look like? How much is written down and how do you know when to improvise? Great question. Love it. 
Um, you know, it's a dance, Eric. We do some prep, especially with the interview questions. Want to make sure that we know the points to hit when we're going into an interview with our guest. Um, but we also really lean into the spontaneity of the conversation. And I think, Savage, you're just getting better at that every recording we do. Just oh, like thanks, following so, your so curiosity. Are you. So are you. <laughs> so am I. So am I. Um, I think I'm getting better at coping with surprise. Maybe that, that's that's my getting better, but yeah, it's both. It, it, we try to do we try to come in prepared, you know. Boy Scouts always be prepared, and uh, also just you know, kind of savor the tangents. Well, I do think that the show being talking to that and, and getting focused on what gets people excited, we've kind of figured out over time. Like, oh, if someone's going on a tangent but they're really pumped, there's probably something really interesting there. Stay and, pumped. Yeah, and as someone who's been interviewed a lot, it's almost always if you haven't discussed the thing before, it's so much easier to get excited, like genuinely excited, than if you if someone asks you the same question every time, then it can feel stale. Like your own answer feels stale. So it's like trying to find those pockets of things that people know really well but don't talk about always. Absolutely. And then Eric asked another question, which is, do we send remote sound kits to the guests to make sure we're capturing good sound? We do, right? We send something. We do. Sometimes we do. Sometimes guests have their own setup, and that's awesome. But we we always ask, you know, if they need any gear. Um, and the thing we've been sending out the most uh, is an external mic. And we use the Samson Q2U USB mic. Pretty easy to use. Gets good sound. We're happy with it. The Q2U. Yeah. Q2U. Q2U. Not too pricey, I think, right? Pretty affordable. Not too pr- doesn't break the bank. Won't and break so the we bank. Let the, we let the guests keep them, right? We do. Wow. We are that Look nice. Look at that. That's incredible. We are that kind. So Eric, <laughs> I hope we've answered a couple of questions for you today. Keep asking. Yes. And if you send us your questions or your feedback, we may read it live on the air, just like this, especially if it is hilarious, embarrassing, unique, very controversial, very <laughs> complimentary, um, very cryptic, really cryptic stuff. There was so much alliteration there. Thank you. That, that the, was the beautiful. cryptic stuff is going to make it in. I think. Don't you think? I think if the someone, cryptic stuff is yeah. is c- kind of the best meat. Like yeah. if someone sent us like some kind of like puzzle that we had to figure out, and could Ooh. we do it? Wow. I don't know if anyone would do that though. If they would email ttlpod at wistia.com. but if they do. You can they be sure. They sent a puzzle. If they, they sent, sent the right puzzle, we might end up even with a bonus episode. That's the type of thing that could happen around here. Dangle that carrot, my friend. <laughs> okay. Dangle that carrot. <laughs> All right, everyone. Thanks for tuning in today. You know, Sylvie, good luck with that desk. I really <laughs> hope you get it put together. No more injuries in the process. <laughs> Thanks, Savage. Uh, um, and if you love the show, please rate and review us wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you have feedback, don't forget to send it to ttlpod at wistia.com. Thank you so much and have a great day, everyone. Talking Too Loud is brought to you by Wistia. Hosted by Chris Savage. Produced by me, Sylvie Lubau, along with Adam Day. Executive produced by Wistia Studios. This episode was mixed by Jarrett Floyd. Listen to Talking Too Loud wherever you listen to podcasts. And hey, rate and review us wherever you listen. And check out more content from Wistia Studios at wistia.com.